Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna, and today I'll be speaking with Bob Darty. I've always been intrigued, as I think many of us are, with what goes on behind the scenes of U.S. intelligence in international relations. As we discuss everything from economics and diplomacy to how families live around the world, I'm happy to have connected with Bob as he pulled back that proverbial curtain and shared with me countless insights on what it takes to make the world a safer place. Bob Doherty worked for over 25 years as an undercover operations officer for the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA. He has deep operational experience having personally managed and carried out multiple high-profile missions in the U.S., Europe, Central America, South America, and Middle East that led to the capture of several most wanted terrorists and the dismantling of their networks. Bob has successfully worked against foreign terrorist groups such as the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Hamas, Sendero Luminoso, the Tupac Amaru Revolutionary Movement, the Japanese Red Army, and the Palestine Liberation Organization. In addition, Bob has extensive experience in working against Iranian state-sponsored terrorism and government of Iran intelligence and procurement operations worldwide. He's received over 20 service awards during his career with the CIA. During the time period before and after the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the homeland, Bob worked as the senior CIA officer on an FBI joint terrorism task force, which provided him substantive experience working the terrorist target inside the U.S. and in foreign countries through, quote-unquote, over-the-horizon operations. Bob has served as a subject matter expert instructor on terrorism and countering terrorist cells inside the U.S. and overseas classes attended by law enforcement, U.S. government federal officers, U.S. military personnel, and civilian specialist first responders. He has instructed over 7,500 American law enforcement personnel over the past several years. Bob is a senior instructor on human intelligence and counterterrorism for U.S. military special operations elements, including naval special warfare, the SEALs, and the U.S. Army Green Beret units. Bob is part of the guest speaker network of Spyscape, and one of his major counter-terrorist operations, the capture of Abu Abbas, was subject of a recent episode. Again, you can check that one out on Spyscape. This was one of the most eye-opening conversations I've had on the show. So without further ado, here's Bob Doherty. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. I don't know who that guy is, but thanks for having me, Brian. <laughs> that was a <laughs> heck of an introduction. So if we could almost start here at the genesis of it all, uh, how does one join the CIA? Yeah, it's a question I get it actually was rather simple. I mean, back in the day in the mid-1980s, I simply responded to a, an advertisement in a good old newspaper. I know there's not too many of those around in the Los Angeles Times uh, and applied. I mean, that was kind of the, the Reagan era, and I had just got out of uh, college at UCLA. So it's very kind of patriotic time in our country, kind of trying to look to rebuild America. And um, I knew I wanted to serve in public service. So I had applied to the CIA and applied to the FBI. I was thinking about going into the military 
and uh, eventually got into the CIA through a newspaper advertisement. Wow, I, I can't believe that. So the CIA actually just took out listings in the newspapers? Absolutely, kind of the most wanted things. Now they have actually recruiters <laughs> that, that go on college campuses, and obviously there's a lot of stuff online. But yeah, back then it was just newspaper advertisements, and you sent your resume into this you know unmarked P.O. box type of thing, and someone reached huh. out to you on a landline, and that kind of started the process. Wow. What did that uh, job description look like in the listing? Well, it was pretty vague. It was kind of like, you know, they said CIA, of course, but they said, you know, looking for people for overseas work and, you know, national security mission. It's going to be clandestine and you have to have a very specialized skill set. So all of that appealed to me as a young kind of hard charging guy coming out of college. That's awesome. And what did you study in college? Is it is anything that led you into this or was it something totally different? Absolutely nothing. I had a, I had a major in economics because UCLA okay. at the time didn't even have a business undergrad, which is what I wanted to do was business. So yeah, I mean, look, to me in, in the soft skills, like, you know, economics and stuff, a college degree is a way for you to mature, show that you can apply yourself to a deadline or an objective and, and over a long period of time, several years, reach that objective. And that was, was what college was to me. I know for the harder skill sets like engineering and computer science, you know, you're going to get actual skills, right? But to me, I always tell people in college, it's about showing someone that you can apply yourself to a goal and over a long term accomplish that goal by using, you know, your dedication and hard work ethics and critical thinking. So that was kind of what college, the college experience was for me. Got it. Interesting. And if you can give us some insights kind of behind the scenes. So you, you joined the CIA out of the newspaper listing. And then what is the training like? I mean, for instance, I've had guys here on the show that that were special forces and they say things like BUDS or their various training programs. It That didn't make them a SEAL. It just showed that they could be a SEAL or that they were already a SEAL. Was your training similar to that in that it, it just kind of weeded people out or did it really create kind of a, a new person that was ready to go be an officer? Yeah, there was, there was definitely some weeding out processes and, um, you know, not a super high attrition rate. So I think the, the agency selection process was pretty good. It's pretty intensive before they even mm -hmm. offer you a job. For example, um, you know, a lot of psychological testing, uh, a lot of IQ testing, a lot of critical thinking skills testing obviously a deep background investigation, making sure that, you know, your background is clean and, and what they want it to be. So I think their screening process actually weeded out people that maybe didn't fit the bill. You also kind of have to have a sense of adventure, of uh, mm -hmm. being able to operate in very ambiguous, fast moving fluid situations, being able to operate by yourself. So all that was part of the training. And, and of course, we have formalized training courses. Our, you know, our field tradecraft course is the basic course for CIA case officers like myself. You know, and understanding Brian that the CIA is 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 built into a couple different directorates. Mainly, we have our operations director, where I was known as director of operations. I don't know what even they're calling it now. They've changed the name several times. And then on the other side of the house is our analytical department and. So the operations guys like myself, our whole career, we operated undercover. We didn't have any affiliation to the CIA. Um, the analysts spent most of their time in 
the Northern Virginia area most of their career, they could say that they worked for the CIA. And so if yeah. you if you look at that, and then we had a support directorate and we had a science and technology directorate. But if you look at really the broad mission, collectors like me would go out and collect raw intelligence. And that was what our training was focused on. And then that mm -hmm. raw intelligence would be finessed and analyzed by our directorate of an analysis. And then that would be fed up in what we call finished intelligence pieces that would okay. be read by the senior consumers in the US government. So that's kind of the way the process works and the CIA works in terms of the different kind of workloads. But all my training was geared towards operating overseas in a clandestine manner, spotting, assessing, and developing human assets, people that were willing to give us the information that we needed um, to answer what consumers in Washington, D.C. wanted to know in terms of national security requirements and, and, and uh, the collection requirements that they wanted to have. And is that something that you pick out the gates? You say, hey, I want to be more the analyst behind the scenes or I want to be out on the forefront like you were. Or does the CIA tell you, no, like your your makeup is going to put you here or there? No, you very much get to pick and, and kind of slot yourself like that. I mean, I, I guess in an extreme example, they would tell you, hey, maybe you're not suited for this. But, you know, we are a paramilitary organization built on the offices of strategic services oss from world war ii that's kind of our mm -hmm. predecessor but there's it's 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 a loose structure and i was always happy with the choices i had and the fact that the agency kind of you know helped me they're, they're they want to give you what you want to do right they don't want you to be unhappy mm -hmm. so yeah they're they're not ordering people i mean a lot of people yeah you have to go to a war zone if you have to go to a war zone and serve there but there's a lot of freedom of choice and the other mm -hmm. thing to remember is we're a very small organization compared to most organizations in the U.S. government. We're much smaller than the FBI. We're way smaller than the military. So um, there's a little bit more familiarity and being able, able to hopefully move and adapt a lot quicker. So I really like that aspect of it. And I wanted to ask you about that because I feel like so much about the CIA is kind of this murky subject that people know of, but they don't really know much about it. And I wanted to ask, how big is it? When you mentioned you were an operations officer going out collecting intel abroad, um, how many people are actually out there like boots on the ground surveilling the world, you know, for our safety? Yeah, if so you have a rough that's number. kind of like classified. I mean, I don't know the okay. current answer, but... That's pretty classified, as you can imagine, because that gives us, a, you know, a hint to, to potential adversaries of our capabilities. But the number would be a lot smaller than you would imagine it would be. Um, and again, just to say that, you know, the number of FBI special agents that we have in the U.S. dwarfs the number of case officers that we have around the world. And certainly the number of military personnel by orders of magnitude dwarfs what we have so we're really yeah. in numbers a small organization but what we have prided ourselves in is kind of punching above our weight of of mm -hmm. being kind of like the special forces are for the military a small component that delivers way beyond what our actual numbers you know would indicate and so that's kind of been the driving force for the cia throughout the years I got it. Yeah, I was going to ask if that's something that's done on purpose that you want to stay small, or if it's just out of out of kind of talent and, and interest in the agency that 
um, that they're having like a recruiting issue or they just constantly want to stay kind of that unique small outfit? Yeah, I think, I think it's always kind of want to say small. We definitely do not have a recruiting problem. Um, mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason a lot of young applicants get frustrated. I think there's like, you know, thousands of applicants for every position that's actually, actually open. And that historically has always been the same. So it's always been a high level of interest. I, mm-hmm. I tend to think smaller is better. I tend to think in, in recent years, as the CIA has gotten bigger, that may have not been a, a better thing. Um, we're starting to become more and more of a bureaucracy now, which is not what we're supposed to be. So in our in our aspect, I, and I know in the private sector, we always talk about growth and we always talk about you know increasing profits and the size of a company and market reach and market share. In the CIA, that may not necessarily be the right model, in my view. Okay. And, and that's what I was going to lead into one of the questions I had coming into today is some of these agencies, as you alluded to, are so big, you know, from the NSA, the FBI, like you said, Homeland Security, the CIA is a smaller version, obviously. What's your take on that? I mean, these gigantic agencies or outfits, do they work? Do they become bureaucratic in when you have something so sensitive as our, our safety, our national safety, um, how do you manage that? Like if, if you were to put you in the, the big chair and you got to call the shots on how these things should look, these organizations, what would you, what do you like and what would you want to see changed? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, to me, yeah, we have gotten too big, right? And what what I, in my view, what, you know, I'm interested to see what you what you think as well. But in my view, mm-hmm. I'm kind of a conservative, and I hate those labels. But I kind of believe in less government. And it's funny from mm-hmm. a guy that served 26 years in the government. I kind of believe <laughs> less government is better. But I, I truly believe that as a conservative kind of Ronald Reagan value, right? Less government is better. Our country's built on individual freedoms, individual liberty, and entrepreneurship, right? And if you mm-hmm. look at any objective history of our country that is what's driven our country to greatness and and i think the same thing for those specialized government agencies bigger is not necessarily better what has happened brian and again my opinion uh only mm-hmm. is that we have drifted away from our core functions right we have drifted away from one of the key uh, leadership traits that i think is necessary which is you have to be a good practitioner of your craft. Whatever your craft is, if you're going to be a successful manager or leader of that craft, first of all, you should be a good practitioner of what it is that you're managing and leading. Whether it's you know making computers or designing some new uh, pharmaceutical drug, whatever industry it is, including the government, you need to be a good practitioner of that craft before you move on to management or leadership. Now, there's great managers and leaders that aren't good practitioners of that craft. I get that, but I think it's just a necessary ingredient for that. And we have drifted away as a CIA from being good practitioners of our craft. We're worried about management and leadership and a little bit of that diversity and inclusion kind of stuff. And that's distracting us from our core goal of, which has always been the same, go out and produce intelligence that is timely, that is responsive, and that answers the critical questions that our policymakers have, the president, the cabinet, on national security issues. 
What is Russia's plans and intentions? What is China going to do vis-a-vis Taiwan? What are the Iranians' uh, intentions in the Middle East? Is a terrorist group out there developing a biological weapon, and do they intend to employ it? We, we're getting away from addressing those hard issues, one, because it is hard, and two, because we're drifting away from actually practicing our craft, getting really good at it. Because it's not sexy, it's not fun necessarily, it's a lot of hard work, um, and we'd rather maybe focus on other things that are a lot easier. That's kind of what worries me about what yeah. I see in our government writ large and also in the agency. And if I had mm-hmm. the power to change that, I would go back and make the agency lean and mean again. Let's get back to our core values of what we're supposed to be doing. And if you translate that to the private sector, Brian, that mm-hmm. that goes that fits really nicely and dovetails into what is it? What is a company's or a corporation's mission statement? I'm real big on mission statements. And not just to have them as the guiding principle of the company and that you don't pay attention to them, they're just on the website. But that should be, that mission statement should outline, this is what we do every day. These are our objectives every day. And if, and then if you have a mission statement that's written that way, then you can adhere to it. It's your standard to base what you're doing every day against. And I used to have the CIA's mission statement you know, posted on a, a little piece of paper taped to my desk in a lot of places I served at. And and every day I would look at it and say, are all the net things that I'm doing today somehow leading to the, to the uh, reaching that mission statement or achieving that mission statement? Because if a lot of them are not, then I'm being distracted from my goals. Then I'm not gonna reach my bottom line. Then I'm not gonna produce the results that I need to produce. And so, you know, again, melding that kind of between the human intelligence and private sector, I think that's one of those key things that all of us, private sector, government, military, we lose sight of sometimes and and we need to get back to what is the core yeah. mission of our business, of our organization, of what we're doing. Yeah, I, and I couldn't agree more with, with everything that you just said there, because I see it on the private side that any really thriving, successful company is all based on competition. And it should be that merit is what drives progress. And I think whenever you throw in those other little elements, you know, some of which you alluded to, then it it takes away from just your, your pure skill and productivity. And you have other little things that either can be a detractor or something that kind of improves your, uh, you know, your profile as an employee. Um, that maybe sometimes isn't deserving. And it's kind of scary to see sometimes people think like, oh, the military or our intelligence agencies, those are like the last bastions. Like all this stuff that you see in the news every day, there's no way that's touching our military. But then now we're seeing everywhere that it is. Uh, And so I I don't mean to get on kind of the soapbox, but I guess my question in that is, you know, we have a political structure that can change every four years. How does that affect intelligence agencies? Do you feel that? Do you feel, okay, there's a new election. We went from a Trump to a Biden. Does that change some of the culture of the agency? Or do you move forward kind of unaffiliated, just doing your job each day? No, it absolutely affects the intelligence collection. Because what happens is when a new administration comes in, they may have different priorities in terms of looking at the world of what's important to them. For example, you know, 
um, a new administration like this one may come in and say, we're all about climate change. That's super important to us, right? Um, mm -hmm. So now we're going to give requirements to the CIA saying that we want you to go out and collect on some issues that relate to climate change worldwide. You're, the, you're our intelligence collectors and you're our main analyst of what's going on in the world. Now we want you to start collecting on climate change and we want you to collect less on X, Y, and Z. So absolutely a new administration can come in and kind of change the dynamic for an agency like the CIA and say, we want you to focus more on these three topics rather than these old ones that you used to focus on. And, you know, in terms of this administration, you know, if I hear some one other person say that climate change is our number one national security threat, I think I'm going to scream, right? It is absolutely <laughs> not. National, an existential national security threat is something that can seriously disrupt or destroy this country tomorrow. And really, there's only two, and that's Russia and China. And the only reason that those are the only two is that they have enough ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads that could destroy our country. Nothing else. Iran, North Korea, terrorist groups, climate change, nothing else can affect the integrity, the existential existence of this country other than those two. So to say that climate change is our number one national security threat is just ignorant and it's just not true. Mm -hmm. And so to that point, I mean, can can the CIA, the, the upper level, can they push back with the president or whoever it might be, if it is directly to the president and say, I understand that's an issue, but that is not the number one issue threatening our country tomorrow, like you said, I think and say so we need more resources allocated here instead of yeah. there for the time being. I, if you have integrity and honor and you know, and you're a practitioner of your craft, you should be pushing back on what you think is right. Now, ultimately, we work we work for the president, right? There's a chain of command. And so we're going to follow the directives that come down. But yes, I would be arguing that point if I thought any administration was collecting on stuff that, that I didn't think was, you know, necessary or the highest priority. But ultimately, our job is to advise. We don't make policy. So we're going to follow the directives. But yeah, there is room to push back and to have discussions on those types of topics. You got it. Because the, the director of the CIA is a presidential appointee, right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. And you so know, that's a lot of times they have cabinet them. level status. Sometimes they don't. It depends on the director, how, you know, how strong or influential they are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, and again, I don't think we've had the best directors over the last several years either, which again, kind of goes to my points of, you know, you got to be a good practitioner of your craft to be a good leader. And I think that's especially important in our work that you have some knowledge of the actual work and what it entails um, for you to be a good leader of the organization. Yeah, and I imagine that's got to be so frustrating for a particular unit to feel like they're so close, they've been working towards a goal and then to kind of get redirected um, just by whatever is deemed to be the priority or the interest at that time. Right. And the, and the other thing I want your listeners to understand, Brian, is, and this is what really irked me about what has been happening over the last several years, is, and I went back and I looked at my oath as a federal officer of the U.S. government. And this holds as, as an officer of the U.S. government, whether you're DEA or FBI or NSA or CIA or U.S. US military, we all basically take the same oath, which is to protect and defend the Constitution 
right? From all from all enemies, domestic and foreign. It's not to the administration in power, right? So mm-hmm. we're under civilian leadership, but inherent in that oath as a federal officer is you're not you're apolitical, you're not partisan. In your work, you're apolitical. We are elements of the U.S. government. We don't make policy. We're not elected, right? So what really burned me was the unprofessionalism of a lot of these senior CIA people, a lot of these senior FBI people, a lot of these senior Department of Justice people and the military people who started delving into politics, either on the left or the right, it doesn't matter. That's Mm -hmm. not their job. If you want to start getting into politics and taking political stances, then get out of your job that you're doing and get into politics. The military and the CIA and the FBI and DOJ should not be making political statements or as individuals be engaged in supporting one political party or the other in their professional sure. work and otherwise using their subject matter expertise and their professional positions to advance one political party or the other. That absolutely violates our oath of office as federal officers. And that's what really burned me about what's been happening on both sides over the last several years. It's inexcusable, it's unprofessional as hell, and it gives everyone in those organizations a bad reputation with the American public. And that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, is there a fix for that? Because it's unfortunate that they, as as the leadership, might represent such a small piece of the agency, whichever agency it might be, but that is all that the American people get to see. They don't see all the work abroad they're just seeing what's on the news each night or this political bickering back and forth. Um, but it is the way it is. I mean, is there a fix to that or should we just kind of expect more and more of the same? I, you know, I don't have a great answer to that other than, you know, let's, let's inject some integrity and honor and loyalty and commitment to your, your job in that and honor your oath. I, I, I don't, I can't say anything more about that. And, and I, if more of that is coming, it's really sad for the government because now people are losing trust. And I think you, I think you see that reflected in polls across the country and national sentiment and attitude, not only towards mm-hmm. the government, towards the press in general, people are losing trust and faith. I tell people, I said, Hey, you know, stop with all the conspiracy and the deep state stuff. All right. Certainly maybe there's some elements of that, but I said, here's the real tragedy, right? Five, six, seven years ago, the, the DOJ and, or the FBI or the CIA comes out with some assessment or estimate or report on a major investigation, I go, you could take that to the bank. You could know that the work had been done. There was good methodology. There was, there was no, you know, as little bias as possible in that and that it was, it was the truth, right, as, as, they, as they knew it. But I go, now? Someone like me who knows the inner workings, now the CIA, the FBI, DOJ comes out with some major thing or announcement or report or intelligence assessment. Now I have a little bit of doubt. Now I have, hmm. how much of that is maybe not true? How much of that is has a political spin to it, right? And I go, I, it doesn't matter that maybe my doubt is 5% or maybe it's 50%. The real tragedy is I have doubt where there was none before. And that's yeah. the real danger that we face now is that people are, are losing faith in their government. And I always go back to Brian, when I was overseas working, I was usually under state department cover. In other words, acting as 
I was a diplomat for the U.S. State Department. And, and, I, and I would run into Americans overseas, and if it was appropriate, I would go up, hey, are you Americans in this country? How are you doing? And they would always ask me, like, well, who are you? And before I would say, you know, I'm Bob Doherty. I work for the U.S. Embassy here. I would say, I work for you. And it always caught them unaware. I said, yeah, I'm a U.S. government employee. I work for you. You pay my salary. And I always tried to remember that, that anybody that works in the U.S. government, we're a servant of the American people. Okay. We forget that so much, and especially at the high levels. And, and I go back to Abraham Lincoln and, you know, government of the people, by the people, for the people. Man, have we forgotten that. And we need to get back to kind of that core foundation. Yeah, no, it's it's disheartening to hear, and I hope we can. And um, the last question I maybe had in this vein, you know, when you see our adversaries, you mentioned Russia and China, you know, kind of the, the elephants in the room, if you will. They can have such a long-term vision just by virtue of being, you know, dictatorships. You know, we we have a pendulum that swings, and I think definitely democracy obviously is the way, but our pendulum swings of priorities Whereas Putin's been there, I don't know how long. And then same in China, you have these dictators there for anointing themselves kings for 20 plus years. They can say, this is the way we're steering the ship and it's going that way, period. Is that in a way, is that an advantage for them over us where we could go from Russia to climate change to domestic security to the Middle East, and, and we can just be bouncing around, you know? Yeah, absolutely it is, Brian, and that's a really insightful point, and I was thinking about that the other day, actually. Putin's been in power 24 years, I believe. He's getting, mm -hmm. he's getting ready to do another four, and Xi in China is going to be there for a long time because he's not that old. So you have this continuity of a vision. You have almost, almost complete control of a huge nation-state in the form of one man, right, or a small circle of people over a long period of time. So they can enact that strategic vision and is absolutely an advantage over liberal democracies that change our leadership all the time. And again, you and I are not advocating that, you know, we have someone like that here in the US, our system works well, but it is a huge advantage for them. And as you know, and even in the business world, you see that we're not good at the long term. We're not good, you know, five-year plan. Hell, most people don't have a five-week plan or a five month plan. We're not good at projecting into the future and saying these are our strategic goals of where we wanna be in a year or two years or three years, much less five years. And then working towards those and keeping on course, that's really hard to do for us as Americans. Cause it's all like, what have you done for me lately? What have you do? What are you gonna do tomorrow? What are you gonna do the day after tomorrow? So we in the West, I think our mentality is limited by that short-term vision. And I see it in the private sector as well. I'm sure you have. While mm -hmm. in the East, let's say, that mindset, that philosophy is more motivated by the long-term. They have sure. a better ability to look at the long-term and say, where do we want to be in 5, 10, 15, 25 years? Yeah. The other interesting point that's a danger point for us is the CIA is really good at looking we're the one organization probably that is good at looking long-term. They did a really long look at, at, at uh, they went back and they looked at history, which I believe is a great illuminator of the future, right? Not mm -hmm. only for government, but for private business as well. And we don't do enough of that as look at past history. 
they went back and they looked at history and they looked at leaders through time and they projected that into the future. And what they said was, if you look at the last 25 years or 30 years of, of world history, you cannot help but come to the conclusion that individuals, individual leaders, specifically Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, drove such discontinuity, were such disruptors that they affected the entire world, a single man. And so they said that was much more of a disruptive force and a negative force in the world than any sort of technological change or innovation or private sector impetus driving forward. And so it's interesting to think about Stalin, Mao, and Hitler, and the impact those three men had on the modern world in such a negative way. Are Putin and Xi, you know, going to be those same type of disruptors? Putin already is. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is a this is a concern for us. And and as you correctly surmise, that's that's going to be something we're going to need to be focused on in the future. Yeah, I think you know, as as a business guy, um, the way that I related or, or what comes to mind is you think of the Fed, you know, the Federal Reserve that probably has more power over our economy and our money supply than anything. And it's distinctly, you know, in their bylaws, if you will, that they are not a part of the government, that they are separate from the government. And the Fed has a dual mandate to monitor inflation and unemployment and go. That's your job. Do it and do that forever, regardless who's in office. And I guess there's just an expectation, at least from me, that you would think these agencies with something so fragile and um, sacred as our security, that it would be similar, that it would be, this is your job. It it doesn't matter what's going on in D.C. This is it. And, you know, I I don't know if the Fed always adheres to that. It can be politicized sometimes, but at least the intent is there. It's just surprising to me to hear that, that it's just not that way for you guys. Well, and again, in the, in the old in the old old days, it wasn't politicized that much, and we have definitely become more and more politicized. And it's it's not yeah. for the good. I can tell you that yeah. it's not for the good. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the future holds. But yeah. I, I know we're kind of dealing in the macro now. I want to dive in a little bit to the micro and pivot here. You talk a lot about and you consult now on what you call human intelligence. For the white person, can you explain what exactly that means? What is that? Yeah, so human intelligence, or known by our favorite government acronyms as as always, human, simply <laughs> is about people telling you stuff, right? And if you think of intelligence, intelligence is just information used for a purpose, okay? So we can use information, we can use intelligence, basically collecting stuff. Human <laughs> intelligence is someone like me, a CIA case officer, going overseas and developing a relationship, right? It's much like, it's much like selling a client or getting a new vendor or, you know, pitching a new, pitching your service to a potential customer. The job is very similar. It's me going out and meeting someone in a foreign government or a foreign group or organization that has access to information, intelligence that the U.S. government wants to know. And then it's my job to spot those people. Where are they? Where do they circulate? What are their lives like? Can I get into that environment with them and actually meet them? And maybe I'll do it virtually now, probably going to do it in person at some point. And then I develop a relationship with them. We call it spot, assess, develop, and recruit, right? And so as I'm developing a relationship with them, 
I got to get them to like me and who I am. Right. And then mm-hmm. got to get to know their, their motivations or their likes and their dislikes. What drives them? What is their ideology? Do they have any vulnerabilities? And then if it looks like, Hey, I might be mm-hmm. able to convince them to give me information that I need in, in return for something, then I can recruit them as human sources of intelligence. And then once I do that, I'm going to try, I'm going to run them securely. In other words, I'm not going to be meeting them out in public. I don't want anybody to know that they're working with me and they don't want anybody to know that they're working with me. So that's where our tradecraft comes in of how do you meet someone? How do you communicate with them securely without anyone knowing? And, and then I'm collecting information from them, right? I've got requirements on certain issue. Maybe this person is um, a mid-level official in the Russian oil ministry. And, and he's given me information on oil production in Russia that we want to know. So I'm giving him questions coming from CIA headquarters in Washington, D.C. He's providing me information, answers to those questions. I'm writing those up as raw intelligence reports and sending them to CIA headquarters in Washington where they're being analyzed by our analysts and then hmm. put into finished intelligence pieces that go to our policymakers. That in a nutshell is how human intelligence is supposed to work. And again, if you want to make, summary. yeah, if you want to make the, the connection to the private sector, it's very much like spotting, assessing, selling, developing a lead or a client or a vendor sure. or making a pitch to a, another company that you want to partner with. So when you go on in an assignment, you've been all over the world. Do, are, is there like a list of targets where they're like, hey, Bob, we really want you to go try and get in with, you know, this guy, this guy and that guy. Or do you go to that area, you know, kind of walk the area, the neighborhood, if you will, and pick and see like these are the folks like how does that initial, you know, assignment work? Yeah, you definitely there's lists of targets generated. So it's again, going back to the private, it's kind of like a lead list, right? There's a lead okay. list of targets generated. Hey, we would love to have somebody, you know, in this group, in this organization at this level. We've identified some people. So we we're doing our due diligence. We're doing our market research, right? And seeing who's out there that can answer the questions we have. And then we may try to develop operations to to specifically target those people get one of our case officers close to them, make contact mm-hmm. with them, right? Or there's also the other way, which takes a lot longer. Hey, I'm just going to go into an area and see what's there and see what I can develop based on what I know are the requirements and what we need to know. Obviously, that takes longer, but both ways work. Um, the targeting way works a lot better because you can be surgical, you can be precise. And obviously, mm-hmm. you're going to turn over a lot of stones, too. Again, it's just like sales and marketing. Not everybody you approach, you're going to assess as, hey, I think this person would be willing to work with the U.S. government covertly. So you're going to have to spot a lot of leads and develop relationships that don't necessarily work out in your favor. I think the obvious question I have, you know, your name is Bob Doherty. You're a white male. You you go into Mexico, China, you know, Palestine, all these different places. You are who you are. Yeah. You know, and then you want to go embed yourself and create these relationships. I'd imagine, you know, if you're especially in a a dangerous area, they're going to look at you and or hear the way that you talk and say, get out of here. You know, obviously you're snooping. Yeah. Is that true? Or like, do you have such a good cover story that you just work right around that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's always it's always, you know, it's always an issue, right? 
We have incredibly mm-hmm. good covers and stories that we use. That's all I'll say about that. That appeal to people or 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 explain why you are there and who you are. Okay. Mm-hmm. They don't try to hide how you look and that you're an American, but explain why you're there and who you are. And then we try to make those covers and those backstories appealing to the type of people that we're talking to. In other words, we want them to want to talk to us based on our cover and our background, right? And sometimes it's simple enough to be, I'm a diplomat from the U.S. Embassy here. I'm a State Department, you know, political political second secretary. And people in that country want to talk to an official American from the government because we can do things for their country or we can do things for them. Or it's mm-hmm. a symbol of power or influence or prestige in that country to be associated with an official American. So there's lots of different ways for us to gain entree into an area or to a group of people. But as you can imagine, sometimes it's really hard. How do you how do you penetrate a terrorist group? How do you penetrate a group that literally, you know, wants to see Americans dead and wants to cut your head off? So then exactly. we have to come up with some innovative ways to do that. Maybe we recruit people from outside the group that we know the group will like and we send them into that group and we embed them in that group from the outside. Maybe we, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, we're pulling guys off the battlefield that we detained in raids and we're talking to them in an interrogation room and saying, hey, you want to go back outside and live your life? Well, now work for us and we'll help you be able to do that. So there's all types of processes. It's not easy, as you can imagine. Sure. Um, It's not easy in a lot of the areas that you described. And that's why collecting human intelligence is really hard. But I will say this, if you work hard and you get successful, we're not talking about numbers of hundreds and thousands. One well-placed source can be incredibly beneficial. You know, look at the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. If you had one source in Hamas that was well-positioned, that would have been able to give warning of that attack, think of how everything could have changed. And obviously, neither we nor the Israelis did. That's a failure of intelligence right there. And there's a lot of mitigating circumstances, I get it. But Mm -hmm. one well-placed source, one, that's all you needed to tell you, hey, this attack is coming. This is how they're going to do it. This is the day they're going to launch it. Would have given us fair, would have given people fair warning, right? Yeah. Yeah. You could see how powerful that would be. And so I have a question kind of relevant to the human intelligence. I had, uh, this is going back probably 15 years ago or so. I read a book called The Art of Intelligence by Henry Crompton. Yep. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but yep, yep, there was one well. part of it that always stuck with me. He said, you know, when we're training these guys to go behind enemy lines, we teach them to study the mice which was money, ideology, compromise, and ego. I ended up using that as kind of the basis for my new book, What Should I Do With My Money, of let's look at all these different economic elements through these four lenses of what's the the money impact, what's the ideology, motivation, the compromise of the ego. Is that a real thing that, that you were trained or studied? And does that play in at all with some of this relationship building? Absolutely does. And it's funny, I know Hank Crumpton well. He's a good guy. I read the book. It's an excellent book. Um, I also highly recommend Black Ops by Rick Prado. It's on the New York Times okay. bestseller list. Really gives you kind of that idea of that mindset. And it's a true story of a, of a legendary CIA officer who was one of my mentors as well. But yeah, what mm-hmm. Hank's talking about, and, and again, that's that crossover to the private sector. Every human being on this planet, and this transcends culture, 
race, religion, gender, ideology. Every human being on this planet is motivated by something. You know, what what are they passionate about? What motivates them? What what gets their juices going? If you can find that, if you can ascertain that, you have an incredible ability to be able not only motivate them as an employee you may be leading, as a teammate that you may be working with, or as someone you're trying to recruit to give you intelligence. It's an incredible power to have. So a lot of the core business of CIA operations officers like myself was getting starting a relationship with someone, using that rapport to build a relationship, and really assessing that person. Who are they? What type of personality do they have? What makes them tick? What are they passionate about? What motivates them in their life? And not in a derogatory, negative way, not in a manipulative way, but to feed that in a positive way to achieve your goals. Again, whether you're selling them a widget, you're selling them a service, you're trying to partner with that company. What motivates that CEO? What motivates that executive vice president? What are his or her passions in life? If I know that, that's an incredibly powerful tool that I have to be able to get positive results and achieve my objectives out of my relationship with that person, whatever those objectives may be. My objectives may be, I wanna sign this guy up as a human source of intelligence. So his motivation is to take care of his family. I've identified, that's his primary motivation. I'm gonna help him do that by maybe paying him some money or giving his kid a chance to have an education in the US or simply in some areas of the world, providing food and medicine so his family doesn't starve or doesn't get sick. Again, translate to the, to the private sector. What are the motivations of that person that you're talking to? Whether you're leading them, managing them, or trying to partner with them, or trying to outcompete them, what are their motivations? If you can ascertain that, you are way above anybody else sitting in that room in terms of mastering your domain of the boardroom or the meeting room or the one-on-one you're having with that person. And that really is the kind of the core essential element of what a case officer does if they're doing their work right. Sure. And, and if it's not classified, I mean, can you share with, with our listeners um, a story either A, where it was very difficult. Maybe you met someone that was able to read you better than you could read them and, and you just couldn't crack that shell. Or maybe it was so difficult, but then it was a huge success that uh, can you give us maybe some sort of uh kind of case study of when you applied some of this? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the stories we talk about, uh, I think this is the Spicecape story of Abu Abbas. Um, Mm -hmm. Right before the first invasion of Iraq in 2003, we had a source come to us in the U.S. actually and said, hey, I know this guy inside of Iraq. Um, He might be a useful source of information for you. So we worked our tradecraft and we got into contact and we convinced the guy to, to leave Iraq, which was still ruled by Saddam Hussein at the time, and come meet us in Europe. And so we met this guy in Europe and he was an Iraqi and he was the leader of a tribe there, um, very close to the Saddam Hussein government. And so we're trying to assess like, why is this, why is this guy coming to talk to us and what are his motivations? You know, and there was a little element of, of danger there as well. We didn't know if he was maybe targeting us as well as, as you said. Mm-hmm. And, and it was really difficult for us to kind of crack that code and, Eventually, as we kept talking to him, 
Um, and a big part of developing a person, by the way, is just simple rapport, right? You got to develop that positive relationship with them using all, you know, quid pro quo and giving a little bit of yourself and being a great listener and being attentive and being empathetic. And you have to be genuine and authentic when you do it. If you're not yourself, it's not going to sell, right? And so eventually over time, meeting him several, several times, he started to know us, he started to trust us. We developed a relationship. And basically what we were able to ascertain and what he verbalized to us was, hey, I know you guys are getting ready to invade. I think you're going to come all the way to Baghdad this time. I think you're going to topple the government. And I'm simply playing my cards to be on the right side. Yeah, I still have contacts with the Iraqi government and I will maintain those. But if that's going to fall, I want to be on the on the side that's going to rule now. And so it was simply a matter of him looking at the table in front of him and saying, my dynamic is about to change. I'm going to go with the guys that I think are going to be the top dogs. And that's what my motivational factor is. Once we identified that, we were very quickly able to leverage that in a positive way and said, we can help you do that. We can help you be on our winning side. And in return, you're going to help us find, <clears throat> excuse me, this most wanted terrorist that we've been searching for, for, you know, 20 plus years. And he was able to do that for us. Wow. And, and when you're doing something like that, how big was the team that you were managing or, you know, <laughs> well, was it, it was, like an element of a few people? Was it just you or did you have a team well, that were surveilling this? It was me and another, it was actually me and an FBI special agent that was team with me. Now we had, you know, targeters and support people and analysts back at our respective headquarters, but it was actually just me and another guy doing the wow. actual work on the ground, writing that stuff up and making, making the movement go forward. It, that is incredible. And that goes back to just how much one person can make a difference, whether on the good side or the bad side. Yes. Um, that's crazy. I, I think a lot of people think, oh, this is like a huge operation, a, a branch of the agency and that it comes down to just one single person and one dealing directly is Oh, I think you've crazy. seen this in the private sector that, and I think there's a lot of quotes. Um, I think Igor Sikorsky from Sikorsky Helicopters had one. It's usually one person that drives innovation and, and, and thinking forward. Not always. And it's not just them alone doing the work, but they're the driving impetus behind it. And then they marshal and they use and they organize the resources around them whether it's the company or the government or the corporation, they marshal those resources and they're very effective at getting the resources they need to drive what they're doing forward, whether that's innovation, growth of the company, the capture of a major terrorist. So I'm a firm believer in that as you are, that you know the outstanding leader um, is really a servant leader, right? They're not the guy or the, or the woman out there that's you know, rah, rah, it's all about me right? They're the servant leader that is empowering their team. And then their team's success translates to their success. But they remain the driving force behind it in terms of the innovation and the vision and the critical thinking skills. And again, being focused on that strategic objective and not losing sight of it and being distracted by, by these other shiny objects that really aren't yeah. the, core, the core objective. Sure. And so I know we spoke a little of human intelligence and, and mice and, and some of that relationship building. Um, if you can share another insider case study on decision making, which is something that I'm very big on, you know, 
when we come to that point, whether it's in business or in your field and it's, you know, it's like, do I go now or do I not? Do I go this way or that way? I imagine you had several times where you had that moment where it was like, man, if I push now, we could win or we could get this guy or it could just all blow up. Like, can you take us through maybe one of those scenarios and how you evaluate and determined? Was it just like a gut feeling of like, go, now's the time? Yeah, sure. I mean, we had a national uh, level campaign going against uh, a major terrorist group, uh, actually Sendero Luminoso in Peru, when I was down there early in my career. And Rick Prado, again, talks about that in his book, Black Ops. But, you know, we had to make decisions all along this multi-year time period, critical decisions on which direction to go to try to stop this insurgency, nationwide insurgency, which was getting ready to topple the government. And it would have turned into this, you know, kind of horrible whole pot Khmer Rouge situation in Cambodia because uh, Sendero Luminoso was a communist oriented terrorist group slash insurgency slash guerrilla group. So what we used then was what I, you know, what I would call critical thinking skills. Right. And so we would look at these, which direction do we go in terms of decision-making with a critical thinking, um, uh, mindset that would look at what we also call in the special operations forces call second and third order uh, consequences, right? Or second and third order effects. And we'd say, look, if we go in this direction, direction A, okay, we we want to achieve uh, outcome Y. Okay. Yeah. We're pretty sure of that. But if we do that, are there going to be second and third order effects of that? For example, if we, if we remove this terrorist leader, if we take him out with a kinetic strike, if we send, you know, a SEAL team to grab this guy and we're going we're gonna to take him off the battlefield, okay, what, is that, what happens to that group then? Does the guy that replace him, will that guy be even worse than this guy was in terms of his level of savagery or disruption? Or will he be replaced by somebody kinder and gentler? Or will the group disintegrate? Or will the group morph into smaller groups that are even more problems for us? So we always tried to look at our decisions with not only the primary effect of what we were trying to achieve, but trying to critically think and look at, are there any secondary effects here that we need to be aware of and evaluate before we make this primary decision? And will those outweigh us making that primary decision? And I think if you do that with almost any decision-making, you're going to come out ahead or with the right answer. I also will add, Brian, that coupled with that, you absolutely, and I cannot emphasize this enough, it's essential to know past history. And when I say history, everyone's like, well, it happened in the past. No, almost any knowledge of past history in your industry, with your company, with the product or the technology that that you're involved with, with counterterrorism, with... Any knowledge of past history is going to illuminate the future for you. Winston Churchill knew that. Sun Tzu knew that. Um, mm-hmm. Clausewitz knew that, right? Confucius knew that. They all talked about, we study past history because it illuminates the future. And I don't think we do that well enough in this country. In the private sector, we certainly don't do it well enough in the government. And, and if you want to boil that down, it's learning from your past mistakes. Right. Yep. I'm not going to make this decision in this industry because look what happened the last time we did that. Or look what happened when my competitor did that. 
it didn't turn out so well for them. That's free information to us. Why yeah. wouldn't we analyze and study that and learn from that? So I think those two things, critical thinking, looking at a problem or a decision and analyzing the second and third order effects of that decision, coupled with historical knowledge on the subject that you're talking about, you'll never go wrong with those two components. Got it. That That's very well said. I appreciate that. And a question, a little kind of tangential to that. I think some people might hear that story of this terrorist cell that you're taking down in Peru. And their initial reaction is, what does that have to do with America? And I mean, if you can tell us what that did have to do with America, and does the CIA run into that where sometimes it feels like we're outside of our lane and we're flirting with that idea of, well, is America the police of the world, which, you know, has kind of a, a pro and a con to it? Yeah, and, and that's a great question. And um, what it has to do with America is simply this. If a country falls anywhere in the world to fanatics armed with power, whether they're a terrorist group, whether they're a rebel group, whether they're some faction of the government or a tribe or a clan um, or, or, a, or a regime like we have in Russia and North Korea, Iran, China, right? That is not good for us especially now as we see this kind of, you know, the worldwide connectivity, internet, social media, business, the speed of business. So I have a favorite saying is local is global and global is local. Something that happens 5,000 miles away can absolutely have an impact on your business here in the United States of America. And the same thing, something that happens here can have an impact there. And so we can no longer ignore those things that are happening in the world. Disruptions, chaos, and stability around the world absolutely will affect our economy and our business here. Hell, we saw it with the pandemic was a perfect example. Look at how a, a disease impacted, severely impacted worldwide GDP. Um, mm -hmm. You know, transportation networks, logistics, supply chains. No one was really kind of predicting that. So... You know, what we do to try to put out these brush fires or save a country or help a country get back on its feet, that's all for the positive good, in my view. That's how it impacts the United States of America. Got it. And one more question I have, kind of getting to know Bob Darty and some of your experience. I, as we're discussing all this, I remember um, when I was at the University of Tampa and I was a freshman there. We, for whatever reason, we had a person come visit and do like an assembly that was from the ATF, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And he was an undercover agent and he was sharing a story that he had spent a lot of his career working with bike gangs that they were trying to take down. They were doing drug trafficking and arms trafficking. And he said that as he got so embedded in this particular bike gang, he felt that he almost had become more a part of the bike gang, then his family yeah. and, and his wife and his kids. And he said it eventually got to a point where like he couldn't go home because he was almost like a gangster and, and he didn't feel comfortable in his own home. And it just, just always struck me. I was like, wow, you talk about commitment to a job. Like he almost became one of them. Right. Do When we talk about in the corporate world, all this work-life balance and stuff, when you're pursuing something like he was, how do you how do you manage that? And at some point, do you have to leave? Because I think he said he ended up getting reassigned because it had become so um, dangerous for him. You know, did, did you have any experiences like that? 
yeah, you know, I, I was using a completely other, other life. I was portraying myself as completely something totally different for, for many years of my career on and off. Um, and it was actually quite easy for me. I think it just takes a disciplined mind, um, when you're, when you're acting like someone else, but for me, and I'm sure he did the same thing, the more my cover, even though it was a different name and a different person and not associated with the government at all, completely, the more I kept it pretty close to my actual background and my real life, the easier it was to live that cover, right? To live that life, mm -hmm. to remember those. And you do, you become invested in it. And as I was traveling overseas in this different, as this different person, you become that person. Um, but you don't lose yourself, right? You just flip a switch in your mind. And a lot of it's just mental discipline. That's all in a mindset. And you become that person and you're thinking like that person. Um, and you are that person. And then when you, when you transition out of that, whether it's going home at night or coming back after a deployment, that switch turns off and you switch back to being who you are. So, you know, it's, it's difficult for some people. It wasn't that difficult for me. Um, but you definitely have to have the right mindset. It's not for everybody to kind of live that kind of dual life and that dual personality. And you do have to be concerned as this <clears throat> ATF agent was that as the deeper you get into it, you start, you start, you know, having some of those characteristics of the people that you're working with, you always got to keep a check on yourself. And again, going back to your mission statement, right? What am I mm -hmm. doing every day? I'm going towards that mission statement. That's why I'm doing this undercover role. And as long as I keep focused on that, then my goal is clear and I'm not going to forget about that and, and get sucked into this too deep that I can't get out. I got it. And what was like the debrief like? Because it's not like you stayed in one spot. I mean, I'm amazed by how many different places around the globe you've been. You know, if you're in Mexico for an assignment and then you go to, you know, Pakistan for an operation in your, let's say in Mexico for four years, being this person, does it ever carry over? Do you ever feel like, oh man, I'm talking like how I used to here. Like I imagine there's some risks where there could be an overflow or you almost forget who you are as you change these personas. Yeah, that, that wasn't so much of a, a concern. Again, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a sophisticated guy. I'm pretty simple. So I always kept <laughs> it true to myself and that's what works. And I don't want your listeners to get an idea that we're playing somebody <clears throat> that we are. There are some case officers that do that and they very much, but they very much come off as kind of the used car salesman, right? And they may have hmm. some limited success, but I'm a huge believer and and maybe it's hard for your listeners to understand. I was always who I was at the core. Even if I was playing another person, my values that I held as myself, as Bob Doherty were always there. They never change. And so if, you're, if your personality comes across as genuine and authentic, again, going back to that skill set that applies to everything that we do, private sector, military, government, you're genuine, you're authentic, you're a good listener, you're empathetic, you can develop rapport with people, you can put away your watch and turn off your phone and show them that you're there spending time with them. You're, that's going to come through. That's going to transcend culture and race and religion and language. And, and you're going to be able to develop a meaningful relationship with that person. And so it doesn't matter the cover that you're in or the persona that you're in. And that's easy to do because that's you. You don't have to try mm -hmm. hard at it. 
Um, I may be using a different name and, and, and my cover, my professional job is something other than I'm really doing, but who I am is still the same in that persona. And that's really the trick. And that, if you can do that well, then you're going to be a really good undercover operative. That's a great insight. And so now if we kind of zoom back out, you know, look at the big picture, um, I think front and center right now, and and it's affecting the markets, the global economy, going back to the supply chain, everything going on in the Red Sea. Um, What... What do we do about Iran? That seem it, it's wild how we're kind of jumping from like horse to horse. It was Russia just two years ago. It's been China lurking in the background of all of this with Taiwan, and and now you know the headlines are dominated by Iran and the Houthis doing all these attacks and these little proxy kind of fights going on. What do, what's the answer there? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know. Um... It has an impact, right? You see oil prices being skitterish, skid, you know, jumping all around. You see insurance rates for tankers and commercial shipping jumping and highlighting. We're going to see probably some disruptions in supply chains. And really, when I talk about intelligence-based strategic consulting, which is kind of the label I have for my company, that's kind of what it is, right? Taking a look at worldwide events and predicting and analyzing and assessing. What impact is that going to have on you and your company here in the U.S. or in your industry in the U.S.? Kind of looking at that big picture. Well, the answer is that they're all going to have an impact going back to local is global and global is local. What to do about it? You know, for the Iranians, and I know them well because I've worked against that target a lot. And let me make this distinction. As the Chinese, as with the Chinese people, as with the Russian people, as with the Iranian people. We don't have a problem with the people in that country. All those three different groups of people generally like America and like Americans one-on-one. Our problem mm-hmm. is with the regimes in each of those three countries, with that select group of leaders who are, in, in all three of those instances, repressing their, their countries as well. So the problem, the, the solution to those problems, to me, would be you got to deal with the leadership not with the people. We're not going to invade Iran or Russia or China. We got to deal with the leadership. And and with Iran, what they respect in Iran is power and force. And again, going back to one of my other precepts, looking at history, when we have had a strong hand, we seized oil platforms from them in the 1980s. uh, Navy SEALs did that. When their Navy came out and fired at us, we sank five of their surface warships back in the late 1980s. When we did stuff that was strong and aggressive, they backed down immediately. So for me, dealing with Iran, we have to have a strong hand with them, a very strong hand. We do not suffer any of their provocations. We respond with force when necessary. And when we've done that in the past, they've backed down. I think the same way to deal with the Houthis. And so, although I'm not a fan of the Biden administration, I'm glad that they're striking at the Houthis militarily. I think that was long overdue. We need to keep that pressure up. A lot of these guys, Brian, at the top, they're bullies. Putin's a bully. Putin's a bully. Uh, The Iranian regime, they're bullies in a sense, but they also want to preserve their power. So if we really threaten them and say, look, we might come after you, they're going to mitigate. uh, mitigate and attenuate their aggressive actions against us. You think about 
when um, when uh, President Trump authorized a strike on uh, Ghassan Soleimani, one of the head of the Iranian Quds Force, right? He was one of our major arch enemies. Boy, let me tell you something. After that strike, the Iranians backed down big time. Because what did they think? Holy crap. The Americans took out one of our key guys. That guy was like their George Washington, Brian. They just took Mm -hmm. him out. Maybe I'm next. We better cool it with the Americans for a while. So, again, why do we not learn our lessons from that and keep doing those type of things? That's how I would deal with it. Got it. And if we pivot to to Russia or China, where maybe Iran is not, at least from what I understand, as big a player, as big a competitor um, as Russia or China, especially China, when you start to deal with a country like that, that is stepping out of line, especially Russia with their invasion of Ukraine, do you have to kind of handle them much more delicately of, we want to take the same stance, but if they say, okay, we're down for a fight, it can be a a major, major issue. Um, Is there, I mean, is there a time where we almost have to come to grips with that, that we might have to make that impossible call of, that could trigger a war, you know, what are some of the thoughts there as you deal with these, like even China, which no one ever wants to think of. Hopefully we never go to war with China, but isn't that a possibility or or do you have faith in that they're rational and they're going to look at us the same way and say, okay, well, we got to be really, really careful with the U S because they're the only ones on the block that can (laughs) knock us off. Yeah, and and I think there is some rationality there, right? Even with the Iranian theocracy, as as we've seen, they back down. You know, once you, it's funny with Putin and Xi and the Iranians and the North Koreans, right? It's a great, it's so much human nature and everything we do come down to human nature, right? Uh, mm-hmm. In everything we do. You know, once you get ultimate power, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to keep it at all costs. You don't want to give that up. As Xi, I don't want to provoke a war with the U.S., Maybe I'll win it and locally, regionally, but man, it's going to be disastrous for my economy and I might not be in power anymore. Same thing with Putin. I'm not going to provoke a war with the U.S. I'm getting my ass kicked in the Ukraine and my economy is not that great. You know, if I do that. So there is some of what you what you say is, you know, and we put a lot of analysis and work on analyzing those foreign leaders and their mindsets and what they're thinking, because that's important, as you point out. But I think from our aspect, yeah, we're obviously not going to get into a military confrontation or we don't want to with China or Russia. But can we, and again, as much as I hate to say it, I agree with the Biden administration on, we got to continue supplying the Ukrainians with weapons. Let them take on the Russians. Let them denigrate the Russian regime and cause Putin to look bad. You know, let's keep our support for Taiwan as a strong, independent democracy. I'm not saying recognize them as a country because that's not been our policy, but let's keep strong supports for them. Let them defend themselves and let's build our regional capability with Japan and South Korea and Indonesia, and Malaysia, maybe even India, which is a natural partner for us against China. Um, mm-hmm. There's some smart things that we can do. And at the same time, we got to build and continue to build our economy, Brian. The big thing that worries me, you know, Russia's a third world nation with nuclear missiles. Their economy doesn't even come close. China is an economic military power. They are a near peer to us, right? And they have a vision. They want to dominate and surpass us. That's what makes them dangerous. 
So that by far is our overarching threat or competitor in the world. And we have to approach it from a multi-spectrum front of military, economic, diplomatic. We got to engage all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I have so many questions off of this, but I want to try and be uh, as succinct as I can. Pivoting slightly, you know, when we look at what's going on right now with Israel and Palestine or Hamas, however you want to phrase it, a two-part question, I guess. Do you think Israel should occupy Palestine? And going back to history, you look at what we did in Afghanistan for 20 years. I mean, just an enormous, enormous financial investment as well. And then for the white person, I mean, you look at it just almost as like a disaster. We walk out of there almost like we got our butts kicked. And then within days, the Taliban comes in and they're like, all right, we're back. Yeah. It, would I does Israel look at that and say, what do we want to do here in Palestine? And do we run that risk of taking over? Now the world views them as evil or bullies. And then if they decide to retreat, then Hamas just comes right back in and says, thank you. What are I know that's a big question, but what's some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, th I, I think it's a really good question. But and I think there's a simple answer. And it goes back to studying history as you illuminated. And, you know, we can we can not only Afghanistan, as you noted, but Iraq as well. We had no plan in place to what happens after we throw out the Taliban. What happens after we get rid of Saddam Hussein and his government? And in fact, we made some horrible decisions regarding those two things. One of the first orders of the, of the uh, coalition provisional authority in Iraq was, we're gonna disband the Ba'ath Party and we're gonna make sure that nobody that served can ever serve in this government again. It would be as if we told Nazi Germany after World War II, no German who ever served in the German army can ever be a part of this government. We didn't do that in Germany and Japan. We went after the top leadership, the Nazi party, the radical Japanese close to the emperor, and we got them and convicted them of war crimes and we did all that. But we let the rank and file go back to running their countries. The Marshall Plan was probably one of the greatest American, American success stories in history. And we made Japan and Germany, two conquered foes, our greatest trading allies and democratic partners. We should have employed the same mechanism, Brian, in Iraq and Afghanistan if we could have. We don't eliminate from positions anybody in the Ba'ath Party. We go after the leadership, we take care of them, and then we allow the government to function as it was, and we make some changes. Afghanistan is a different question because it's always been tribal politics there, but the Israelis are gonna face the same question in Gaza. If they're gonna govern there, they're gonna have a whole host of issues just like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. My view for them, and they're already talking about it, hopefully, you gotta get some Arab partners in there, the Jordanians, the Saudis, right? Maybe some of the Emirates some multinational Arab Muslim force that comes in there and rules, maybe with United Nations participation, you provide the security for sure as Israel and make sure Hamas doesn't regroup, but you hand over the governance to an international coalition. That has to be the answer for them because you're exactly right. We will repeat or they will repeat the same mistake that we've already made and that has been made in history if they try to govern that themselves. Got it. And I know this is almost expanding more questions that are coming to mind, but I, I got to ask you, 
Um, I made a chapter of, of my book, What Should I Do With My Money? And this surprises a lot of people. There's a chapter on religion. Hmm. And people see that like, what the heck does this have to do with a finance or economics book? But as you dig more and more, and as I did more and more research in going back to history, religion just has such an enormous impact. And you see it right now, especially in the Middle East. What What is maybe some of your take on that? Because it seems like religion will stay long after a country will, and it'll stay long after an administration will or a tribe will. <laughs> and I just don't know how you kind of manage that when if you have one religious doctrine says, you know, this is evil and this is good. I don't think you ever change that. And I, so I, I don't know how they resolve that amicably uh, in a place like Israel and, and Gaza. Yeah. It, it, look, it's been up. We're talking, you know, 5,000 years of history, right? <laughs> uh, it's tough, right? And who was there first and all that. But, you know, the bottom line is, and, and I did, a, you know, obviously because of what I did, you have to get into ideologies. You have to get into religions and understand them. And, and actually, you know, any major religion on earth shares a compact you know shares some core values they're not warlike they advocate peace they advocate compassion they advocate taking taking care of your fellow man and so islam christianity and judaism are no different than that right mm -hmm. in fact they're co-religionists abraham is the patriarch of all three religions jesus yep. christ is an honored prophet in islam right so there's more that there's more that ties them together than than, than tears them apart what has happened in the world, and I love I love uh, this quote by Eli Weisel, the Nobel laureate, concentration camp survivor from Germany. He says, the problem of the 19th century in the world was fanatics armed with power. He was talking about Hitler and Stalin and Mao. And he goes, the problem of the 20th century is going to be fanatics armed with power. It hasn't changed. It's always mm -hmm. fanatics armed with power. And so extremists and fanatics in all these religions they dominate the discourse, they take the agenda, and they start driving their extreme view of their religion, whether it's Islam or Christianity or Judaism or Sikhism or Hinduism, whatever you have. But it doesn't represent what that true religion is, but it dominates the headlines and it dominates the discourse. How do we combat that? And that's a messaging, strategic messaging, communication, education piece, right? Because that's mm -hmm. part of the problem in the Middle East. Um, those religions can live together. There's lots of areas of the world where people of all religions are living peacefully together. So it's not like it can't happen. But I do agree in the Middle East, you always have to take into account the religious factor because it's such a huge factor of life. And we as mm -hmm. Americans and we in the West, even if we have faith like I do, we don't understand how much it dominates life there. And I think that's what you're going to. I'll give you this a simple example. Most people you meet in the Middle East, if you meet them for the first time or very quickly as they're introducing themselves, they'll sit, they'll tell you, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jew, right? That's their identity. We identify, hey, I'm Bob, I'm Brian. And then secondly, this is what I do professionally. And maybe seventh or eighth on the list, I might tell you what religion I adhere to or not. So yeah. it's a core part of their life. And as you correctly identify, any solution to the problems there has to take religion into account. Yeah, no, I think those are some great insights. And I think a lot does come back to just education and the public relations and perception of um, kind of handling these things so that they're not hijacked and used by fanatics, like you said. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I want to pivot one more time. I know we'll be wrapping up here, but there's a question I want to ask about, you know, what's your take on some of the uh, emerging innovations or technologies um, that could be a top priority for us nationally, whether it be private or public sector, um, you know, because it does seem like tech is all consuming. It's everywhere. It, it's the game changer in a lot of instances. Uh, any insights you have there, if you kind of have your finger on the pulse a little bit? Yeah, I mean, and, and they are the things that that I worry about as well, right? Because I'm not a pessimist, but I always have to look at the dark side, right? What mm -hmm. what might some of these innovations and in technology be used by 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 bad actors, right? By malicious yep. actors um, to cause harm to our country or to our world, right? So, but I also think those are opportunities for investment. Uh, to make money for for your listeners as well. Some of the things that stand out to me, obviously, everyone's talking about artificial intelligence, AI. To me, that part of AI that is most significant is generative AI that's going to generate images and messages and formats for you. So I almost think that anything related to AI um, that's viable is probably a good investment and something to look for in the future, especially the generative AI that's gonna be able to help people's creative processes. Um, I think that um, there's a lot of a lot of work being done on uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, right? Drones, all right? But not only unmanned aerial vehicle, aerial unmanned mar maritime, unmanned ground vehicles. Now, a lot of people think that's, oh, well, that's a pure military application. Not true. There's a ton of applications in the private sector. So I think looking at investments in in, in aerial, unmanned aerial technology, unmanned drone, uh, maritime technology, unmanned ground technology is going to be huge for the future. Can you imagine the Ukrainian, you know, and, and what's born out of war is an innovation, right? The Ukrainians are using small little maritime drones, little ships that they've designed to attack the Russian fleet. We know that terrorist groups and the military uses drones all the time. They're talking about ground elements as well. Those types of things are going to be used in the private sector more and more to do jobs, um, to get out into remote areas, to deliver supplies and packages, to do all these things that a human used to do. So I think that's a great area for investment um, for your listeners. Impressive. The other one is, is what I would call um, misinformation and disinformation, right? What we call deep fake videos. In other words, videos or video content that is so well done that you cannot tell that it's not real any technology that's being developed to identify when something is fake in a video format or in an audio format i think is going to be huge in the future as this deep fake technology permeates more and more into our regular life and is online in a variety of of, of areas so i think those are kind of the key areas that I would identify for your listeners as, as looking at that I think there's going to be a great demand for in the future. Sure. And that deep state, deep fake stuff is terrifying. I, I know that was on 60 minutes a while ago and it's, it's scary to see something that could be so real. And it's almost like once it gets out there, the, the damage is done. I think you can go back after the fact, maybe say, Oh, that video was fake, but um, that could ruin somebody's reputation. Yeah, even. it's really scary. And look, when I talk about the drone technology as well, then the, you know, not only developing those technologies for positive ways, but there's going to be a whole 
opposite market on how you counter drones that are being used for nefarious purposes in the air, in the land, in the water. So it's kind of a dual technology set, right? Um, Long range sensors, um, maybe using nanotechnology or biologics are going to be huge in the future. They're already huge right now. People are also talking about quantum mechanics, right? In other words, that science that is going to, is going to allow us to use computing speed like it's never been used before. And it's going to change the way we encrypt things and bank records and transactions. So those are kind of the main areas that I would look at if I was an investor, um, yeah. if I was, you know, private equity fund, um, private venture capital, those would be yeah. some of the key areas that I would be looking at. Interesting. And so last two questions I have for you, Bob, that I just want to get out here. Uh, this has been a great tour of of the CIA and and so much to take away from this conversation. But what do you think is maybe one thing that the American people, the lay person, gets wrong about the CIA? Is there something out there that we just we don't understand that you're like, the people ought to know this? Well, you know, first of all, we're not we're not we're not spies, right? We recruit people to spy for us, right? We're we're okay. operations officers, right? That's one that, that Hollywood always gets wrong. We're we're generally, <laughs> although we have you know, not out. We're not law enforcement either. We don't have arrest powers. And although we operate in the U.S., we're very limited at what we do. We usually operate with the FBI and strictly within the realm of like counterintelligence, counterespionage and counterterrorism. Right. Um, so, you know, we're not out arresting people and, and gunning down people. We do, you know, have lethal capabilities when authorized by the president take out terrorists or so forth and so on. But that's all a formal process that goes on. So I would say, you know, we're not super big. We're not all pervasive. We're incredibly small. We're not law enforcement officers. We're not spies. We recruit spies. And and we work for the American people. I think a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. Or we should be Perfect. working for the American people. Understood. And then last monster question here. If you could change one thing about the world today, what would it be? Oh, wow. That's a huge one. Uh, I'm going to say something that's maybe a little weird. I think one of the things I see that leads to a lot of issues and problems we're having in society is first the the, the disintegration of kind of personal accountability at, at the home level, right? I think, you know, there's a generation of parents that have failed their kids of raising them properly um, and not being their best friends and not helping them through life and, and not giving a sense of entitlement to them. Um, and a lot of the problems that we're having in society are with a generation of young people, younger than you and I, for sure, that are not prepared to take on their role in society. They're not prepared professionally. They're not pre- pre- prepared in their personal lives. And we have failed as parents. We have failed as an educational system. And we have failed as a country to prepare them to do that. Um, I would love to see more of an emphasis in all those areas, the home, education, private business on critical thinking skills, being able to look at whatever issue, whatever question, and being able to see both sides of it, right? And being able to critically analyze and see that and debate that in one's mind and come to some sort of reasonable conclusion. We're not doing that well in this country as you see the incredible divisiveness that we have and the divisions that we have. And we need to do a better job of that. And and again, we're all at fault. Um, yeah. So if there's one thing I would try to fix, 
it would be that a reemphasis on critical thinking skills and then a reemphasis back on the core again what's the core mission of our country life liberty and the pursuit of happiness man we've we've drifted away from that quite a bit and if you go back to that and say is everything that we're doing as a local government, a regional government, a state government, a federal government, is everything we're doing in our personal and professional lives helping me achieve, helping my family achieve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Because if it's not, maybe I shouldn't be doing that thing as a government, as a person, as a company. Um, yep. So that's what my takeaways would be. And thank you. No, a lot of truth in that. And I think um, it would be helpful if those organizations from the top all the way to the bottom just kind of challenge themselves again and ask themselves those exact questions. Yeah. So I want to, you know, switch to the lightning round. This is one of the favorite um, segments of my show for my <laughs> listeners. So if you're okay with it, we'll dive into it. I ask you a question. You tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Number one, I mean, you've traveled the world probably more than most of my guests. Do you have a favorite destination or vacation spot? Bora Bora, by far, not even close. <laughs> Bora Bora, perfect. Uh, what is your favorite book? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm going to say Looming Tower by uh, Lawrence Wright. Okay. Uh, favorite movie? A couple of them. Um, the Patriot and, um, and uh, Gladiator. Great movies. And do you have a quote or mantra to live by? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, uh, my, I have a philosophy to live by, which is, I think, real men and real women want their family to be successful and thrive. And if you can achieve that, that's your real legacy. Um, if you can empower your family and be that guiding force for your family, personally and professionally, and, and try to help them achieve the best lives that they can, financially, economically, personally, growth-wise, uh, physically, mentally, then that's your legacy when you leave this world. Nothing else we do will matter other than the legacy that we establish with our families. Um, God. I'll ha I do have a favorite quote that I kind of like here. Okay. One of my favorites. In fact, I have a book of quotes. I highly <laughs> recommend this for people. I have an informal notebook. I'm betting you have something like this as well, where through the years, I've just written down stuff that's really appealed to me. And I'll mm -hmm. go back to that notebook and look at some of those things sometimes but i like this one struggle and criticism are prerequisites to greatness that is the law of the universe and no one escapes it so i think as you go through life you're going to have obstacles you're going to have adversity you're going to have struggle you're going to have criticism that's necessary you're not going to excel you're not going to become better as a father, a husband, a wife, a spouse, a leader of men, a leader of people, a CEO, an individual person, you're not going to become better without struggle and adversity and criticism. Yeah. And so we should embrace those and, and have those make us stronger and come through on the other side. Yep. It certainly stands in contrast to uh, participation trophies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment? I hope being the best father and husband that I can be by far and away. Perfect. That would be my, my best legacy and accomplishment. And any big regret personally or professionally? A couple. Um, I kind of wish um, I knew this is kind of an obscure one, but 
the first Americans into Afghanistan after 9-11 were a CIA team. Um, they were led by a legendary officer named J.R. Seeger. Um, he was he was one of my mentors. I worked for him at one point. I wish that I had had the foresight to be on that team and be part of that. It was a, this historic kind of response and it achieved objectives way beyond its small size. So that would be my one regret professionally. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where were you at that time? I was actually here in the U.S. working on a joint terrorism task force. So that was equally rewarding working with the FBI, uh, sure. you know, right after 9-11. But to be on that team and the first Americans into Afghanistan and really having that impact after the 9-11 attacks, that would have been incredible. Yeah, I bet. And last question of the lightning round. Did you have a hero growing up? And if so, who was it? Wow. Um not really. I think I got to tell you, Brian, the group of guys, and I'm glad you asked this question. If you give me two minutes, the group sure. of guys that I grew up with were really my motivational factors. Um, all of them were successful. Um, I, I will break them into two sets. My hometown boys, Brian, Jules, Jeff, um, John Davey, uh, Lee, Jack, Whitey, all of these guys that I grew up with, went to school with in various aspects, they were all successful. They've all been successful in our personal and professional lives. And then I have kind of a second little group based in Hawaii, Wheels and Jeff and JD, my brother-in-law. And they've all been very successful, what I call real men. Great husbands and fathers, great friends, great in their professional lives, a well-balanced view of life. Those were really the guys that I looked up to and admired and respected. And I always thought, if I have their admiration and respect, then I've done well. So that's how I would kind of answer that question. No, well said. Well, Bob, this was great. I think you gave us so many insights and takeaways today um, from the macro to the micro of global intelligence and, and even, you know, kind of correlating it to business. So thank you so much for your time. This was excellent, Bob. Thanks, Brian, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yep. And everyone, please keep on tuning in to the Kaderna podcast. Wherever you're listening or watching, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review, and we will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.